0: Hello and welcome to the AI Artifacts Podcast, a podcast about the scale, the scope, and the steady drumbeat of artificial intelligence developments in the world today. I'm Brian Wormuth with my co-host, Sarah Luger, PhD, for a journey under the hood, beneath the hype, and into the fray to see where opportunities are emerging, what's getting reshaped, and who's really saying what in the ocean of buzzwords flying around right now. Sir, we actually have breaking news today that I'm gonna start this episode off with, and we don't know too much more. Things may change by the time everybody hears this episode on Saturday, but as of Friday afternoon here, uh, the timestamp on this Verge article is from about an hour ago, uh, 1234 PM Pacific time. Sam Altman has been fired as CEO of OpenAI reportedly by their board. Uh, It says after a deliberative review process, um, there's also an official announcement on the site, so this is all thoroughly confirmed. Uh, OpenAI announces leadership transition. Fascinating story that I'm sure everybody will be aware of by the time we get to Saturday. Mr. Haltman's departure follows a deliberative review process by the board, which concluded he was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities. Uh, according to the company Ooh. in his place. It, well, it says they no longer have confidence in his ability to continue leading open AI uh, in his place. Uh, Chief technology officer Mira Marathi will be the interim CEO effective immediately. Uh, now she's somebody you and I have, have spoke. We have, we each, have history. I'll, I'll put a link yeah. to the previous podcast episode that Sarah and I had recorded together where we actually interviewed her. So uh, this is a, big day for everybody there. Uh, and we don't have a whole lot more information about exactly what the board took issue with him not communicating about. Um, do you have any initial reactions?
1: Uh, I do. So interestingly, when we spoke to Mayor Marathi years ago, maybe yeah. four years ago, yeah, we were talking about general AI, and this was before OpenAI released ChatGPT. This was before the current set of products that we now associate OpenAI with. This was when OpenAI was an Elon Musk-funded moonshot-style uh, company with a lot of um, promises of grandiose activity, but very few products that we saw, zero products. So, the uh, Mira Morati herself has a history working with Elon Musk and... She joins now, you know, she she was CTO, and now she's moved into the CEO CEO. role. Yeah, Yeah, interim CEO. I also noticed that uh, Greg Brockman will be stepping down as chairman of the board, but he'll remain in his role at the company uh, reporting to the CEO. So it looks like there's not just one transition. There's a couple uh, moving pieces. And, you know, the the main things that have been going on at open AI, they have been actively trying to gain more AI talent. So they leveraged the fact that they were kind of the, um, the dark horse in the race. They were, people did not know exactly what their product was. They, they had years of funding and rumors as this um, kind of positive AI collective that would solve all of our problems. You know, A lot of articles where everything was said and nothing was said. But now we all know what OpenAI does. They take money from Microsoft and others, partner with uh, established companies and provide quite fantastic AI solutions from a chatbot perspective. Are they accurate? Are they um, perfect? Not always, but they have been a game changer in the AI landscape. So this is this is big news. This also speaks to um, the fact that we had um, an Open AI Dev Day last week. I believe it wasn't within.
0: Uh, I believe it was last week. We talked about it on last week's episode, so it was a, it was a little bit over yeah. a week ago. But it'll be it'll be almost two weeks ago by the time people hear this.
1: Excellent. So so basically, what's going on is that this is no longer a. Um, Research Hive. This is a real company that is going through the the uh, struggles with board communication, investor transparency. That uh, all large companies, especially one at this scale, both from a cultural impact as well as a. We're already impact.
0: starting to talk about this, but I think we should just review the biggest news that we had prior to this this week which was the fact that Altman recently gave an interview to the financial times talking about the next version of chat GPT, or at least he made reference to the fact confirming that chat GPT five is in the works. Right. And I think a lot of what you bring up here about the maturing of the company is relevant to both of these conversations. Clearly they are at a very important point in their timeline as an organization Uh, Part of this goes back to Sam Altman going to Washington, D.C. and appearing in front of lawmakers uh, under scrutiny uh, and at the White House to discuss the future of AI. He's clearly been in the spotlight and been having uh, a lot of very important conversations about this. Uh, However, we've just hit demo day last week, as you mentioned. And as we'll get into in the next story we talk about, uh, regulation and perspectives between countries, uh, namely China and the United States, about next-gen AI capabilities. All of these things are front and center on a lot of very powerful people's minds right now. Uh, I wonder what we'll find out ended up being most relevant to this transition.
1: And again, there are billions of dollars of investment in this company There's a transition from stealth to product mode. I wonder if this had anything to do with the announcement about Mm GPT-5, but I'm, my inkling is that this is normal scaling Mm -hmm. challenges. It is very difficult to run a company in the spotlight like they have. And uh, to do that effectively, this is, this is the hot commodity over the past year and it has been almost one year since chat gpt yeah. was released
0: i think that's a very very important milestone to bring up well let's get into I, I think you're here's the next one i think you're probably familiar i'm sure you're familiar with stability ai right yeah
1: um,
0: so they they had a, yeah. a major resignation from ed newton rex who oversaw audio at the company uh and the big point he made on his way out the door was he did not like their policy toward fair what they ref, what they view as fair use of audio files out there that they gather and put together to train their AI and he uh, referred to this perspective of fair use policy toward using copyrighted audio for training purposes as exploitative. Uh, you know, copyright something that's come up on here before. We'll get into it. Let next week a little bit more with next week's guest. Uh, it'll come up, I think, a little bit in today's interview. But uh, yeah. what did you think of his reaction there?
1: Well, this is a person who is both an artist and a technologist. Mm-hmm. So from from the news that, that came out, he discussed how he didn't want his um, choral compositions being used without consent. And so he understood both sides of this. He's He's having his bills paid as uh, a member, as a you know, a leader in this their technology team. But at the same time, he understands and is in the shoes of an artist saying this this doesn't ring true. These kind of half statements, the the um, you know, standing right on the cusp of of one or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the all of and he does, and he also says this isn't uh, stability alone. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, stability I, yeah, I AI really want to is, that. is I hope the norm. I didn't misrepresent that because he did yeah. he did refer to it as this this approach to fair use categorization across uh, different the types of vast
1: trends. majority of the companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so I think it would be great to hear a perspective from a company uh, that is trying to do this another way. Mm-hmm. But OpenAI, um, Meta, Amazon, Google, all of the the hyperscalers. We're saying if this data is online, it's fair use, mm-hmm. and I think that um, Ed Newton Rex and others are trying to n- articulate their problems with it, navigate, and then probably you know actualize in terms of either developing a, a new company that that does right by their perspective, and or support regulation, and or um, actually, just raise this from a, a humanity perspective, saying: Are we headed in the right direction? Can we make some changes to the way that we all look at data? You know, what is its value? So, I hope, uh, I, I hope that he uh, channels this uh, opportunity for for good public relations to um, to get at some of his. It's goals. a necessary
0: conversation. I, I think his voice is very valuable 100%. for exactly the reasons you stated—that he has perspective from both sides of the technical process and also the creative side of rights holders to these pieces of, of work, uh, whether it's music, whether it's artwork, uh, whether it's photography, whether it's writing, right? And this is very remin- reminiscent to me of the discussions from more than a decade ago in uh, scrape web scrapes and repurposing of content under fair use Premises that got very, um, shall we say, liberal in some use cases and resulted in sites like BuzzFeed taking down a lot of content after complaints and uh, legal processes caught up with the way people were treating content that belonged to other people on their sites, right?
1: And I think BuzzFeed viewed this as a reputation mm-hmm. play. You know, they didn't want to be; they did not want to be known as the underbelly of the internet. They wanted to be known as a respectable uh, information mm-hmm. source.
0: And, then, and so, and let's put a pin in that and say they've gone through a heck of a journey, and they shut down some of their yes. more in-depth, like news investigative operations. Sure. Unfortunately, but they're they've been finding their way in their public era. They have since then,
1: I, and I think they're a good. Um, a good analogy to to bring to this because if we acknowledge the, on the face value of what these tech companies are saying that hey we're muddling through this ourselves mm-hmm. i think that uh, buzzfeed is a good a good uh, narrative to look at but at the same time ed newton rex says this is an unbalanced marketplace i make tech money and i know that my artists uh, my fellow artists do not make that money and are are not being treated fairly.
0: Yeah, that's um. I want to bring one up. So let's bring this full circle back to the APEC conference this week by getting into some quote. Yeah. A quote from Sundar Pichai, uh, the CEO yeah. over at uh, Alphabet and Google. Uh, he said in a interview this week that it, in some ways, uh, it's like climate change and the planet. He's referencing AI here. He said we all share a planet. I think that's true for AI. And he said, this is why, quote unquote, you have to start building frameworks globally in regards to how regulation is implemented, what standards are observed where. I was really struck by this, and this will come up in the interview everybody hears in this episode with Jade Newton today, uh, about this acknowledgement about the complexities of AI regulation because you have so many things going on across borders, and when you make one rule somewhere, is somebody going to run across and do something somewhere else that creates the same outcome? How do you how do you guard against this? And I think, you know, for better or worse, with everything with APEC going on, this is why these conversations are important, and why actual collaboration and agreements with consequences are are important, right? Um, one other thing that came up as in it, reference to it, APEC, and we saw Joe Biden speaking with uh, President yes, Xi yeah. Jinping from China this week. Um, I want to bring up, I'll put this in the show notes, but there was a, a Washington Post coverage of this. And it says, in an hours long meeting earlier this week, President Biden and Xi did did discuss AI. And in a statement afterward, the White House said the two countries had agreed to, quote-unquote, address the risks of advanced AI systems and, and improve AI safety through U.S.-China government talks. At the same time, Biden emphasized that the two countries, our competitors in the United States, had held the line throughout the APEC summit that the export controls over chips that are essential to processing AI are not going anywhere. So I think that just underscores the high stakes of these conversations. Uh, what uh, what did What were your takeaways watching this happen this week?
1: I think that it's really important to note that information is different from chip 100%. development. Yes, to build these chips, you need um, you need the the uh, architecture, you need the implementers, you know, so you actually need the the brains that go along with the the plans, and you need incredibly sophisticated. Uh, manufacturing facilities, along with logistics and distribution facilities, along with regulation that allows you to do this on a global scale, because these chips are in everything from your phone to uh, space-guided missiles, right? They're, they're ubiquitous. Now, information is different. There are many countries that have um, walled online resources, so that you don't hear, it's, we all have a different. Um, we all get a different version of the mm-hmm. internet, um, and that has a lot to do, of course, with even your uh, cookies and you know select where you hang out, you know what you what you choose to look at, how the AI then models what you look at next. So I'm not saying that someone in the United States has necessarily seen a very wide perspective of the information mm-hmm. that is out there, but information is like water so I think what Google is trying to emphasize is that they are involved in the regulation conversation. I think that this is a very interesting time for them to become more active in regulation but again they understand that that information is like water it will it will seep it'll find cracks it'll it'll find its way to uh, permeate, Environments that it might not have been initially. um,
0: I think that's a useful image for,
1: for example, yeah, yeah. For for example, uh, Google has not been pro regulation in the past, and I do have to wonder how much of the concerns by the hyperscalers currently are about societal impact or about competitiveness. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that Google and some of some of the other more established technology companies have been surprised by OpenAI's uh, successes. There are other companies that have similarly come out of uh, virtually nowhere to be extremely powerful in the uh, large language model generative AI realm. And Google might be feeling like they they need some regulations to help uh, slow the role of these companies a little bit. I
0: think this gets into something that will come up in the interview we were airing in this episode with Jade Newton about- exactly. Uh, Questions of regulatory capture, even, and accusations that, you know, some of these more powerful companies are looking to get desirable uh, rules imposed that actually enable them to be the ones who can comply. And even in cases where smaller new upstarts may not be able to compete with them. So something to keep an eye on. Another thing to keep an eye on, very importantly this week, is our score in the ongoing Two Truths and AI competition between you and I, Sarah. Um, I'm very excited. Okay. I had my first victory last week. People may have discovered, uh, I'm now, uh, you're, you're two and one against me. So this is my chance to, to come, come up and uh, get neck and neck with you on this. So two truths and lay. I just refresh everybody. Each week I come back to Sarah with two real stories and one AI generated story. And she tries to guess which one is the AI generated story. Uh, I'm actually very proud. I've gone for a thematic uh, uh, correlation among all these stories for you today, Sarah. Uh, the theme for today is dogs. Yeah. Okay. I am not an expert. It's okay. on you that. don't need to be, but uh, I think as a pet owner, uh, okay. even if you are a cat owner. and
1: I, I, I do have a, a cat. I've had cats hamsters, fish.
0: How, how, how familiar, are, familiar are you with AI applications <laughs> within the pet space?
1: Uh, not Good very.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Um, I feel, feel more emboldened now.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, let me, let's start with number one here. And, I'll, and I'll tell everybody what the real sources are, and we'll keep these in the show notes uh, for after. All right. Here's option number one. AI-generated movie posters with Disney logos force Microsoft to alter Bing image creator. Viral social media trend uses of family dogs to create realistic movie posters. Microsoft has tweaked its artificial intelligence image generator tool after concerns were raised over a viral social media trend where users created realistic Disney film posters of their dogs, highlighting broader copyright issues in the industry. Disney's logo was visible in illustrations made by Microsoft's Bing image generator, which then were posted to TikTok and Instagram. All right there's option number one. Here's option number two. Tech leaps into the doghouse. Virtual fe- pet, excuse me, Virtual Fetch Simulator, also known as VFS, promises pups a digital playland. In a groundbreaking fusion of cutting-edge technology and canine entertainment, a Silicon Valley startup has unleashed the Virtual Fetch Simulator a virtual reality experience tailored exclusively for our four-legged companions set to revolutionize the way our furry friends play the vfs promises a digital wonderland where dogs can chase virtual balls leap for imaginary stickers sticks and embark on an augmented reality adventure that taps into their innate sense of fun it's a leap into the doghouse that's turning heads and wagging tails across the tech world the brainchild of a team of ex-Googlers and dog enthusiasts, VFS is a canine-centric virtual reality headset equipped with state-of-the-art sensors that respond to a dog's movements and reactions. All right, there's option two. Now option three, Meta's new AI tool will let you add a dog into every picture. Meta's upcoming AI-based tools will let you edit any picture in some very interesting ways. The company's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, teased some of the upcoming capabilities of EMU, Expressive Media Universe, Meta's Image Generation Foundation model revealed in September. The first tool announced is EMU Edit, which can precisely alter images based on text inputs. For example, you could add a dog to an existing image, remove a person from an image, turn a dog into a panda, or change the image's background. All right, those are the three options.
1: Okay. So number one was the um, Disney calling Fowl or is it Howl on the Disney uh, logo. Yeah, so Bing Image Creator has logos present and Disney branded dogs. Um, Disney is incredibly litigious when it comes to supporting what it views as uh, guardrails around. Mickey Mouse and other content. They are so litigious that they have created intellectual property protection for images as we know it. This is, uh, pardon me, Mickey Mouse is their bread and butter, an incredible source of revenue, and they are going to do everything in their power to protect it. So, this is not out of the realm of possibility. Um, And you know, if we remember that all of these systems are trained on online imagery, then there will be um, both advertising and uh, affection, you know, so people posting their favorite dogs from these, these uh, Disney series by choice. So fan, what I would describe as aligned fan art and um, official information that have been ingested into the Bing image creator. Now, so that seems very plausible Two, the virtual fetch simulator this sounds totally plausible Um, i i wonder yeah i mean unfortunately a dog still needs to use the restroom so um, uh, this is one one failing i could see as well as the fact that um, technology and dogs i mean it is kind of a, a match made in heaven as well as three emu this, edit text inputs. I I have seen uh, tools where it can choose a selection of you know when you take say a, a sports team photo of your friends, and everyone looks great in one photo, but you need to it would be ideal if you could have a photo where each person you know it's it's kind of a collage. So my I, again I think that that is completely possible. Um, I am going to say two just based on the recent Humane AI article on how expensive um, these systems would be. And if you look at the range of dog sizes, that it would be very hard to to create hardware at a scale where this would be uh, well-priced. But I think that this could be in the near future.
0: Sarah, you win. You got this one. Yeah. I'm back. You're, you're back ahead. <laughs> yes. You're back to a healthy lead. again. I'm sorry. Me. You're uh, you're three and one now. So.
1: I, I'm sorry. I, I was quite upset last week that I, that I, um, I feel like I, I was a little too gentle. I needed to bring my analytical skills up, but these are all great. Um, I mean, this is amazing. I would buy that it's for believable. a It's believable. I've, right? I've read you about your, people your pet trying happy. these
0: things. It's very similar. This was almost fully... I didn't edit this very much. This was almost fully chat GPT generated, but it, it, it reminded me of another story I read recently. So congratulations. I I salute you. Uh, I'll try to do better next time. All right. I'm going to keep... Uh, hey, this,
1: these were great. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Fantastic. I enjoy coming
0: up with these uh, each week, and it's, it's, it's sometimes... I don't know, this. I thought this was a good combination. Good good measure of believability in oh, yeah. here. All right, so, uh, so let's skip ahead now. I'm going to queue up our interview that we did this week with Jade Newton. Uh, I'm excited for everybody to hear this. Welcome back for this week's interview. Sarah, would you like to introduce today's guest?
1: Thank you, Brian. I would love to. Jade Newton is joining us today. She is an AI data expert who's worked in large-scale AI data annotation companies where she's managed data collection for natural language processing tasks, as well as computer vision tasks, talked to her about drones. She's also just returned from an academic tour supporting recent research in AAVE, African-American Vernacular English. She is joining us to talk about her background in responsible AI and is associated with Black and AI on the board of Feminist AI and has, chatted with me at length about interesting reading groups she's been a part of so it is always a great discussion with jade newton thank you for joining us
2: thanks for having me i'm happy to be here and chat with you all today lots to discuss
0: yeah Yeah, how's the how's the well i'd love to know how's the academic tour been what can you give me give me some (laughs) highlights from
2: that (laughs) Sure. Um, so I presented my research at the Linguistic Association of the Southwest's annual meeting, uh, which took place at the University of Denver in Colorado. I'm sorry, the University of Colorado in Denver uh, in October. And then the following week, I went to the University of Western Brittany, for, which is in France, for a linguistic symposium, Uh, in which I presented the same research, but this particular um, symposium focused on uh, language and identity. So
0: correlating my
2: research in Aave and code switching to language or to linguistic identity.
0: I'm excited to hear about this. I mean, for listeners who don't know, Sarah has a a deep background in natural language processing. And I, I find some of the most, some of the best conversations I've ever had with her that have been lightning have been about The intersection of AI and natural language processing with different languages, different um, you know code-switching ideas behind intent and meaning, and also you know all these concepts you're talking about, whether whether it's a regional dialect, whether it's a you know uh, a pigeon of of some other language of of languages together. But uh, love to hear that, and we're excited to have your perspective on today. Uh, We have you, you. yeah. your perspective intersects with uh, something that came up in the news uh, uh, by this time when the readers hear this, this will be a couple of weeks ago, but the uh, Biden's White House executive action on AI, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I'd love to get into where your head's at when you see LLM's AI being deployed right now. How do you look at responsible AI and what is, what is, a, what is a good sort of framework? for defining the standards in your head when you think about, is this being done responsibly?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I think a baseline for talking about responsible AI and even safety in AI, um, Mm -hmm. because that falls under that umbrella, is looking at access, um, who has access. Um, One of the ways that we should be looking at responsible AI in addition to access, but also in looking at access, eliminating barriers to access to technology. And I'm not even talking about AI technology, just basic access to like computers. <laughs> um, just have, Wi-Fi. yeah, Wi-Fi, just having basic access to those things. Um, and from there you can build on you know education. So technological education, um, who has access to that education? Uh, how do we eliminate barriers to that education? Which in turn eliminates barriers to careers in the tech space, whether you go into the space of AI or whether it's, you know, being an IT person. Um, So that's just like the baseline of responsible AI is Mm -hmm. eliminating barriers because AI should be your technology in general should be for everyone Mm -hmm. to utilize and benefit from. I'll see if I can throw maybe a census
0: report into the show notes because I, I mean I think that's probably the easiest way to map and just show, you know, what percentage of households in the US actually mm-hmm. don't have access to high speed internet, right?
2: So that is a that percentage something I'd have to look up. But one of the things yeah. over the last few months I've been working with a responsible AI or startup. And these are just some things that, you know, working with these larger companies, something you think about in the back of your mind, but you're actually in it and you're working with these schools where it's like oh our students we had to figure out a way to get them all you know laptops so that they could do their homework it's just not some because i have had the privilege of having access so it's not something i thought about but um and then even going deeper than that once you look at the access then you have to look at inclusivity uh bias like all these things so there's it, it just all builds Um, So I think when you're talking frameworks of responsible AI, those are like the bare minimum basic things that need to be discussed before you start getting into the, something like what the White House is is doing with the executive order.
1: One of the things I often think about when responsible is thrown around is who is not at the table, Mm -hmm. like whose voices are not in the room. And that's what cascades when we don't have equal access to technology. And it's sometimes responsible, makes sense to a handful of technologists, because they're thinking of themselves, you know, this is an agile approach, agile methodology, where you have a persona, and the persona is often very much aligned with the people in the room. So when we talk about making things more responsible, there's cascading benefit from that first step of, of uh, eliminating barriers mm-hmm. to technical technological access right And even with with you saying with who's
2: at the table um, it shouldn't just be the technologists or the people that are creating the AI it should be your everyday your librarian, you know community leaders um, you know teachers, uh, the students who are going to be needing the access like all of these people should have a seat at the table and have a voice. Uh, When you're talking about responsible and safe and ethical AI,
0: my question for you, and this this could be related to the executive order or completely outside of it, but in your in your mind, where do you see the best potential paths for solving these access barriers? Right, is it as simple as better school budgets and getting uh, more laptops into school into into rooms? Is it as simple as better access to Wi Fi and, uh, internet. Um, does it go beyond that? And are there maybe issues specific to AI that come up as, mm-hmm. as you're thinking through that?
2: Um, I think yeah, you do need better school budgets. Um, right. I, I'm all about, you know, increasing school budgets over budgets mm-hmm. for other things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Because education is, I mean, that's key. Um, Mm -hmm. And and increasing the school budgets doesn't just benefit the student. It benefits the teacher, benefits the parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Because from there, you're increasing the the school budgets. And you're also, what you need to do is teach the teacher about these things, too. Um, I've learned um, over my short time working with this education startup that there's a lot of fear around AI tool implementation in education. The education field, both um, your lower ed and higher ed tend to be behind the curve when it comes to adopting uh, new, t- new technologies. Um, so it starts with, yes, budgets, absolutely, but education too. Um, and then even when you say access to Wi-Fi and things like that, yes, that's also an issue because there are, for example, um, the area that I live in, there's a they were doing a survey um, not too long ago about subsidizing Wi-Fi for people who can't afford it. Um, And so those are things that you need to think about. Um, You know, you have people at a disadvantage because they don't have access to these things. They can't get the job because they don't have the Wi-Fi to apply for the job when you have to do it online. So it's just, it's literally everyday things that, and there are small things that can be done, but yes, you do need the money uh, to create the access for those who don't have it.
1: I think it's interesting that we've gotten to a point from a technological perspective that Wi-Fi internet access is very similar to heat and and power. You know, uh, I recently worked at a telecommunications company, and during COVID, we saw Measures where people would rather have connectivity, they would skip a meal. You know, this is more important than any of us could have ever imagined decades ago in terms of the prioritization around access to the internet and to communication. I think
2: COVID definitely put on display for the world to see the who the, the who had and who didn't essentially um, in terms of. Access to technology. How many students or how many schools were scrambling to get their students connected, so that they could not miss their Zoom lessons each day? Um, it just really put it at the forefront, which I think is why now um, there's so many there's so much talk around being responsible with our technology. Um, where prior to that, there was you know a talk here and there, but now it's really at the forefront of every government, uh, every corporation, all of that.
0: What's in my head, too, with what in line with what you're saying is, you know, when you get, get to these services that are cloud based and depend on, you know, solid Internet connections, you know, these are the tools that are available through those channels. Right. So if you don't have access to one, you don't get access to the other. As you've been watching the the conversations leading up to the executive action, and i'm I'm curious to hear your perspectives state in at the state level, at the federal level, um, or even we'll get into Europe later um, what are the what are the best and worst ideas you've seen on the table for taking action about these these problems?
2: I think just reading about the executive order it it there's some. I think it's a good foundation. Um, it's a good start. Um, I think having NIST involved is a very good step in the right direction. But also, as I was reading through in detail some of the the measures, I also had a lot more questions about. You know, okay, so who's going to do the oversight on the government, the military? We know they play by a different set of rules than the rest of us. Um. So at the state, and then also. You're looking at at the state level. You know how are, how is the federal government going to um, ensure that the states are doing their part to uphold uh, what's outlined in this executive order? Um, you have states that are like less government involvement. And you have other states that are like, hey, we do need the government involved, because you know. So um, it'll be interesting. I feel like, one, I have more questions than mm-hmm. answers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, but I think
2: it's a step in the right direction. Um, I also feel like there's a lot of, and I use this term a lot because it's so true, there's a lot of fear around AI and what it can do. Um, and I think all that fear just came out into the forefront within the last year with the chat GPT or oh. OpenAI's ChatGPT chat GPT tool. Um, launching. But prior to that, people were, we were using AI every day. Mm-hmm. It, this isn't new. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that now it just got socialized, got socialized so that the, the everyday person is now more aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but to go back to answer your questions, like who, who's going to oversee the overseers, who's going to oversee the mm-hmm. government, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, who's going to sit on the, 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 I think they said there was going to be a national advisory That's council right. or something mm-hmm. like that. Who's going to sit on that? Is it only going to be the people that going back to access? Right. Is it going to be the big C, you know, the C-suite of these? Are they going to send a VP companies? from
0: each of the big tech companies to sit on it? Yeah, you know, is, exactly. Is, yeah. Who's, mm-hmm. Who knows?
2: Are you going to have community leaders on these, um, on these boards? Are you going to have creatives? Because as we see in the news every day, the actors and the writers, and as someone who's a music journalist, are you going to have people like us? on the, on this council. So those are just some of the things that I was, some of the questions that came up as I was reading through all of the, all the things.
0: Yeah. It's very similar to the, uh, the conversation Sarah and I had, because I, my first reaction was, okay, good. So there are consequences for government budgets and contractors in place, but each one of those has a definition. Certain things will hinge on and each definition will come down to how is it interpreted in practice, right? Who is on that Mm -hmm. board making those decisions when the, the rubber meets the road. Right. So uh, interesting to hear you say that you think it, it, it's a good first step. Right. And I, I wonder, um, what do you like maybe as we're talking about the goals, we talked about some of your definitions on there. Um, what tangible scenarios do you think the average person should be aware of? Uh, like, let's talk. I mean, we're talking the United States specifically right now. But what do, mm-hmm. what do you think the average person on the street should be aware of in this conversation about consequences of decisions that take place as this rolls out and subsequent decisions are made?
2: Um, I think privacy is a big concern, Mm. Uh, hence the reason you have, you know, if we're looking to Europe GDPR, Mm. um, I think privacy is a huge concern. Um, But there's caveats to that, too. Mm. You know, um, like, yes, I'm concerned about my privacy as I text you from my iPhone with my location on, you know, so um, there's that. but like I was saying, like, AI has been touching our lives for decades. Um, this is not new, but like Sarah said, it's become socialized. So I think in terms of just being more aware, um, I mean, and this is probably something I can put into practice myself, just being more mindful of how I'm using it, making sure I'm using it responsibly, um, understanding even the the long-term environmental impacts that AI could have on mm-hmm. On just my day to day.
0: Yeah. I'll send people back to, to listen to our interview with Thomas a bit when we got into that a little bit deeper on uh, water and resource issues. Yeah, Sarah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I think that it's the socialization point is really key, but Jade has a lot of experience in NLP data annotation, mm-hmm. and there's something about our voice in communication. That really uh, flipped as well mm-hmm. with uh, OpenAI's ChatGPT, and I wonder when we talk about privacy, if you've, do you, um, from your professional experience have you seen kind of a difference in the way people look at voice data versus visual data? Because with the new AI tools, we see both voice generation and image generation. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to that?
2: You're asking if I'm seeing how, if people are reacting differently to voice versus visual.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and historically, through your experience with AI, have you seen those data types be able? Little...
2: I think uh, um, in my experience uh, with NLP, there was more uh, hesit or I don't want to say hesitation, but uh, concern around voice data, um, especially when you're looking at how certain tools are being trained and tested uh your chat bots your um what do you call them your virtual assistants things like that um there was a big i think some years ago uh, a lot of companies got in trouble um for how they were going about acquiring voice data to train their their voice assistants or virtual assistants um I would say in the everyday, I've seen and I've done it myself. Uh, in, I'd rather send a voice note sometimes versus send a text because the voice note's going to disappear after two minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think it just depends on the sensitivity of of what's being talked about. Um, but I think with the visual data, what I've seen in my experience, it's been it, specifically uh, speaking to computer vision, it's been more around, um, at least the clients I worked with was more around like vehicle safety, warehouse safety, things like that. Um, but yeah, but then the, the, when you're doing the voice data collection, it was a little more personal, um, a little more scary, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I say all that to say, I, yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting because and. Even, but then even you could take it a step further with computer vision. Um, you can look at, and I'm sure we'll talk about this facial recognition software mm-hmm. um, exactly. and how that exactly. it could be used for good, but we've seen it mostly used to discriminate, to um, to create bias, or it has created bias. Or sorry, the the if you're looking at, we'll take, for example, the the 2020 protests around George Floyd,
0: mm-hmm.
2: they were using facial recognition data to arrest protesters. Um, so I've never worked with any facial recognition companies. Uh, I just It's just not something that I choose to because I know how the software is being used and it's not necessarily for good.
1: It's also the data that's being collected is unbalanced mm-hmm. and the errors affect the uh unequal treatment of effect exactly. like who is affected. Exactly. So I think it's really important um, for us, maybe folks who are not the stereotype of what a computer scientist or an AI expert uh, is, to to look at the world and look at how it's already uh, struggling with mm-hmm. fairness, and how this is a tool that unfortunately, doesn't always reflect our best selves. Mm-hmm. And facial recognition is, is squarely in that.
0: In that, um, yeah. I'll, Let me just—I'll I'll put a pin in something that's really, I, I think, important for the average person to understand. And this, we we touched on this before in a previous episode. But in these data sets that are being used to train the AI, the AI is only as informed as the diversity of examples and the, you know, it, the sampling of of what's there underneath, right? And that's a result of decisions that are made in what the AI is trained off of, right? Um, And I I really, I'm glad you bring this up because I wanted to get into this whole data thing. One of the things that stood out to me most in this markup breakdown that I think Jade, you shared or Sarah shared in the notes, uh, which I I really liked and I'll put that link in our show notes. um, This conversation ultimately comes back to something we've been at before, which is encryption and data privacy uh, at the federal level. And I wonder... How do you feel about the state of that conversation right now? And are do we need to get past that in order to solve these other problems?
2: Well, I think there. In order to get past that, there needs to be some trust, mm. and <laughs> there is no trust. <laughs> um, and then, even as you know, preparing for this show, I was reading about how, you know, when you're looking at privacy and encryption, I mean, the federal government can easily just circumvent the rules that they've created to get what they need. Or what they want? Oh, you know what? We don't need a court order for this. We're just going to buy it off of whomever. You have this data we want. We're just going to buy it from you. We're going to circumvent the legal process. So there has to be. There's no trust. Mm -hmm. Um, You ask the average American: Do they trust the government? Do they trust politicians? I've
0: seen those polls. I might include one of those in the (laughs) notes. The the results are never good. Results are really good. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and this is across the yeah, board. Yeah, it's like, across the board, regardless of your party. Your, yeah.
0: It's the one thing yeah. we're united on yeah. <laughs> in America, broadly, right? Yeah.
2: We don't trust any of them. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think, yeah, we all love Cheetos, and we don't trust the government. You know, there's some basics in America. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, right. Well, um, so I think we've talked about what, what things may have been right or wrong. You think they got right or wrong in this action. Um, let's get it. I know one concern to, to throw in a perspective from some of the people who were sitting, who were sitting at the tables during these conversations, uh, and people who are, who compete with them, uh, do you see the outcome of regulatory capture, i.e. big existing companies leveraging these new regulatory approaches to cement their dominance and become more successful? Do you see that as a potential outcome of what's going on, or is it something that you're particularly worried about?
2: Um, I'm not really worried because I don't think there's going to be much change, mm-hmm. uh, and I say that because at the end of the day, you have your large companies, whether it's a tech company, whether it's an insurance company, you have they have people doing work for them, lobbyists, mm-hmm. and so at the end of the day, um, as long as their lobbyist is getting things done for them, mm-hmm. I don't think um, <laughs> I think they'll continue. It'll just be business as usual. Yeah, and that's and I'm because
1: that- <laughs> Sarah.
0: So what what would you like to say about that? I
1: I, I agree. I I agree. It would be business as usual. But I do have some like positive future feeling about this because I did represent I did I did attend a United Nations Human Rights Commission uh, thought leadership board where I represented um, Telco and we had representatives from OpenAI, uh, the big anthropic, the big AI companies Mm -hmm. doing generative, as well as academia, as well as representatives from local uh, embassies. So we had people who were concerned about human rights from Ecuador, from Mexico, people who all over the spectrum, they were professionals, but they were not the CEOs. And there were some folks who were more openly from, um, pardon me, openly is not the right word. They were, they were, everyone was very transparent about their background, but they were also from uh, environmental mm-hmm. groups. And I was impressed that that was a, the net that they had formed for who was included because I did not expect, I expected it just to be uh, tech folk. And the reality is that these tools are going to affect mm-hmm. us all. And the United States does not have quite the reputation as the UN or maybe even EU on these areas, but if they were to replicate some of the approaches that other governing bodies have tried, I think that there is uh, some mm-hmm. hope. I think there's a lot yeah. of hope, but I think I'm wait. I'm wait and see as well with yeah. you. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, and
2: and I mean, AI is a great tool. I mean, I've worked in this space for seven years, and I love it. Um, but I also think, uh, just looking at when we're talking about the regulatory capture, so you know, yes, we have this executive order, this hundred-page plus executive order outlining how we can, you know, break basically, you know put some guardrails in place. At the same time, the technology moves so fast mm-hmm. that, you know, how often are we going to be updating it? Um, I think that's one of the issues that um, they're having in the EU is, you know, they have these these loose guardrails in place, but by the time they published it, it was outdated. So that's something else, you know, that we need to look at too in terms of regulation. Um, and And, you know, like you were talking about the goals underpinning the policies, like that's mm-hmm a really huge one, you know? So we have these things in place now. Oh, look, now we have another technology that's, you know, doing 10 times what Chat GPT was doing, but there are no guardrails for it in place in this executive order.
1: So how do we tackle that?
0: Yeah, I, I'll say like, per- one yeah, thing
1: that I think, oh, I was just going to say, one thing I think about is that some folks will say, oh, the horse has left the barn. You know, like this is, we, we've lost the plot. Um, keeping up and this technology is too powerful. But as humans, we're adaptive. And I think that we could also look at this as what is best practice and how are we shepherding these ideas for next, you know, future generations, the next folks to follow us. And when I I see the fact that we are catching up and we're not doing as, as good a job of it, it also brings me back to your comments about education. You know, maybe we should have Um, we definitely need to have more technical um, awareness and understanding in all levels of our society. And that includes our government Mm -hmm. um, employees, the people who are, who are helping to regulate these areas.
0: That's the number one thing I always think of whenever I see this come up in Congress, you know, and it's, it's sometimes I'm not sure, does the person not know about the technology or are they just not interested in exploring, you know, do they just have their own pet Mm -hmm. project they want to turn this discussion into? And that's, that's both of those things are equally frustrating to me as a constituent. Right.
2: Yeah. You can even take that a step further and look at companies that are like, I actually made a post about this on LinkedIn the other day is um, the last few years at um, working in computer vision, I worked with a lot of industrial automation companies who, Mm -hmm. you know, they're still operating on windows 95. Uh Uh, So it's like, you know, you talk to them about adopting AI technologies to benefit their business, their employees. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, no, because you know, one, there, there's no there, the technical literacy there in Mm -hmm. terms of what technologies are available and can be useful. Is just uh, the the literacy or the education is not there. Um, And it's one of those, it's not broke. We don't want to fix it. You know, let's just keep doing things the way we've been doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they don't have anyone providing that leadership. Like you mentioned, uh, Mm -hmm. Brian, yeah. Uh, that thought leadership, you know, hey, here, let, let me help you understand this tool A and how to be beneficial. And oftentimes, those companies, they lose customers to this small company that's like, hey, we're adopting new technology. So they're losing business. So, you know, like you said, it's either there's this fear of this new thing that you know, no, we've been doing fine. And then there's also the lack of education from the business side too. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the cynical part of me sees what you're talking about. And I'm like, do they actually care about this market? Right. Or are they really, like, is that part of the decision-making or is it carelessness? I don't know. Sometimes is it mm-hmm. intentional because they care about one market versus another or not? Yeah. So I think
2: it also comes down to the bottom yeah. line too. Sometimes.
1: Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree. Jade, when you're presenting this this scenario it made me wonder if there are any actionable steps that perhaps a company could take when they are thinking about implementing ai in their product or buying ai training data just a couple of best practice maybe that um companies could be thinking about so that they understand how their decisions could cascade. Yeah, and perhaps negatively perhaps with a PR problem. I think
2: one of the main things needs to happen is open conversation. Um, you know there's this this one article I love to reference um, that looks at the five like the five uh, different adoption levels of AI. Um, and I think the first thing that companies need to do is have these open and honest conversations. Um, I think a lot of times companies are like, you know, that's a great idea. But no, <laughs> you know, people just aren't even open to trying new things uh, because of fear. Like, I'm not open to eating escargot because I don't want to <laughs> eat snails. I don't care how much of a delicacy it is. I'm just not going to do it. And it's the same in, in <laughs> business when you're trying to adopt new technologies. Yeah. Like, It's expensive. You know, you want to implement, you have a 100 plus year old company, let's say like GM, 100 plus years old, trying to implement any type of new technology is going to be a heavy lift. You've got millions or I don't want to say millions, but thousands and thousands of employees. Now you have to train them, but they're doing it. And they did it by taking baby steps and having conversations um, internally. And so I would say one is having the conversations Understanding what is like, what pain points do we have that we can prioritize um, that could be that baby step. Maybe it's, and I'll just use manufacturing as a as an example since at the top of my head, hey, our employees are burnout; they're working all these hours, um, fatigue is setting in, so they're ca- there's more mistakes on the assembly line. How about we try out a couple of cobots, which is a collaborative robot that can help do mundane things like move one box from this end of the warehouse to the other end of the warehouse so that this employee can focus on, you know, putting this door handle on whatever vehicle product (laughs) they're making, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's a baby step. Um, Another thing could be, um, I'm trying to think of the other ones that I, uh, employee training is one too. So even just educating your employees, even if you're not adopting a technology right away, Uh, educating your employees and on the available technologies and how they could benefit uh, what they're doing. Um, And that starts at the top. So the C-suite needs to be educated Mm -hmm. too. And the same could be said for our government leaders who are wanting to implement these guardrails. You know, you start with the baby steps, um, you start with the education, having the conversations. Um, I feel like the, I know there have been talks for years about putting guardrails in place around AI. So I'm not going to say that these uh, regulations came out of nowhere, but I do feel like they were kind of reactionary because um, yeah. people have been begging for um, guardrails for for years now. But um, I think the chat GPT uh, was probably the catalyst that was like, all right, we definitely need to start putting some guardrails in place. Hmm. Uh, yeah. That was a
1: long-winded answer to
2: your question. But... I appreciate that.
1: We love it. We love these. We love these approaches. Do you? You know, Jade, um, it's so much fun chatting with you. I also wonder if California. You know the fact that California, where the three of us live and where there is a very robust technology mm-hmm. scene, they. They moved. They made some mm-hmm. decisions about the technology regulations, and they have and, companies
0: here doing, working you know, in that space. Well, so they did that, not yeah, without, yeah. you know, consequence. To you
1: know, yeah, there would be yeah. repercussion. Yeah, repercussions right. to that. Exactly. So, I also wonder if the government is kind of going, "Oh heck, the place most close to it is doing regulation." Well, you, you have to, because I
2: mean, you think of how many companies are in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, like you have to take some steps or else it's going to be like the wild, wild west, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think- It kind of is wild, wild west, yeah. So, but I think California is definitely at the forefront uh, in terms of countries, I'm sorry, in terms of states in the US, we're at the forefront of technology. Um, We literally have it at our fingertips. Um, so, it, yeah, they need to be setting the example for the for the rest of the country. And I think next up would be Texas because their tech scene is a lot of companies are putting, uh, they have, uh, what do you call it, satellite offices there. You know, the big four all have offices in Texas. Washington State, um, you know.
0: Sure. I th- This is great. Sorry, I don't know if you have anything you want to bring up or Jade, you had any other points you want to bring up? I know we're over the half hour mark and I know you've got a hard stop coming up, but uh, is there anything else you, you'd like to add in terms of uh, where people could follow what you're doing or uh, what you're most interested in? What the are the horizon? questions we haven't yeah.
1: asked?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: no, I love talking about this stuff. Um, I talk about it a lot on my LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. people can find me on LinkedIn. It's Jade Newton. Yeah. Um, they can shoot me an email. Uh, I'll leave it with the show notes. Um, yeah, you can follow me on on all the socials. I love talking about this stuff. Loving having love having conversations. I mean, I could
0: keep talking <laughs> about this. It's good. <laughs> well, maybe happened, maybe we but... we can have you back in season two because, uh, <laughs> like like we were saying, like this stuff is changing yeah. every month or two. Mm-hmm. It seems like right now, so. Um, great point dynamic circumstances all over the board all right well yeah thank you so much and uh yeah this this was a fascinating discussion to have and i i really appreciate you bringing on your perspective on this
2: no thanks for having me i just want the people to be informed (laughs) and don't be afraid of ai yeah
0: at the end of the day those are the two great goals (laughs) that'll
1: be our tagline be informed informed, and don't don't be afraid afraid.
0: I'm changing the. Graphic, I think
1: we yeah. just uh, found the title for the album. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Amazing! Thank you so much, Your perspective is always so instrumental. Thank you very much for having me. This is great.
0: That's a wrap on this week's episode of the AI Artifacts podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll visit us at aiartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. This show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license.